You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I had an amazing conversation with Morgan Lander and S.J. Jones about Kitty Pig. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! Inside the Musicians Guild, as brought to you by Sound Talent Media and Evergreen Podcasts. And as always, I thank you for still listening and I thank you for joining me here. So, now a couple weeks back from tour, finally settling into the home thing, sleeping, eating, you know, normally, feeling normal. Um, it was great. It was a reality, it was a dream, it was hard work, it was no work, it was a grind, it was fun, it was encouraging, it was uplifting, and uh, as usual with the hyperbolic nature of a musician's life, uh, it had just as much struggle as it had triumph. And they're never separated and partitioned, but rather woven together throughout. And for me, that's the beauty of it. The beauty lies in the chaos, or the order of the chaos, which is to say that there is no initially perceivable order, but that within itself is an order. And I think that the more we learn to appreciate that, the closer we get to the reality of how things actually are on this earth, in this universe, in this reality. Or maybe I'm always just thinking like that because I am that annoying, contemplative, troubled dude who uh, tries to be still and notice the space between things so that I can see them clearly, but I end up just seeing more that overwhelms me, which leads me to more questions and less answers, and I myself have to be comfortable with that too. Rock on. So yes, here we are. Another field report with yours truly, your host. I thought before I start rolling out other guests' field reports and full-on conversational episodes, I would just uh, put a close to this whole tour, this new aspect of the pod, where, as I said before, we stop postulating as much and start uh, discussing the doing and getting into that. And to go along with the metaphor of this physical space of the Musicians Guild, or the four walls, as I like to say, I guess this would be um, another 
viewing or tour of a new addition to the building, to the quote-unquote four walls, this new uh, annex to the Musicians Guild, which is myself and friends and guests of the pod actually doing and being on tour rather than talking about it as we did during pandemic when this all started. So let's do that, shall we? My first tour around the U.S., on the ground, the old school way in a tour bus since 2016. My first run of more than four or five shows in a row since last June when we did the RX tour. You heard a field report from that run already. If you haven't, you can check it out. It's the intro to this season. And yeah, to do my first proper U.S. tour in nearly six, seven years with The Sound of Animals Fighting um, is really cool. As many of you may know, it's a combination of us and RX and members of other bands close old friends. We've been doing this since, I think, 2005 or six. And when we get out on the road uh, with eight people in the band alone, uh, four of us in the main band and then four different vocalists that are on stage together and at separate times and kind of just rotate in and out as the set goes on, it's, uh, it's an event. Everything we do is an event. I think at the end of the day when we were out on the road, it was 15 to 16 in total uh, touring crew. And that uh, required us to take two different tour buses, which is a huge production within itself, just that transport. Uh, We played the first show in San Francisco. And uh, we had to fly to L.A. before we got picked up in the tour buses. So this tour was even more kind of crazy feeling in the beginning because of like the hybrid travel. Generally, when a band goes on tour, you kind of just start with the bus and end with the bus. And there's very little mixing. But in our case, it's already such a unique project that doesn't tour often. And the way things just uh, shook out was that we had to do that. So we played our first show in San Francisco at the Regency Ballroom and uh, didn't get back to the hotel till like 12.30 and had to wake up at, I believe, like 5.30 or 5.45 the next morning, Saturday morning, to fly to L.A. to play the Will Turn that night. Musicians Guild. Field report, January 6th, Friday. Show number one of the Sound of Animals Fighting Tour done. Back at the hotel, rooming with the Chancellor, Rich Balling. It is right now 1240. We have to be up in five hours to go to the airport to fly to L.A., I'm going to play the Will Turn tomorrow. It was a really good show tonight. 
It's a very good first show, all things considered. I'm going to try and get some sleep. Well, we were supposed to sleep till 5.30, 5.45, uh, until I messed that up. Musicians Guild Field Report. Saturday morning, about four and a half after, four and a half hours after the last uh, update. Like a rookie, I thought I set my alarm for 5.30, but you know the way you, there's those number dials on an iPhone uh, alarm, the way you set it. I thought I set it for 5.30 and I must have moved it at the last minute and set it for 4.30, so. I woke up my poor roommate, the Chancellor, Rich Balling, far too early. Now we have to head down to the lobby to be transported to the airport. To be Tron to L.A. To be Tron to L.A., as he says. But luckily, the ever-gracious and patient Rich Balling uh, was able to fall back asleep and he wasn't too bothered. I look forward to having him on the pod soon where we get to discuss this tour and a bunch of other stuff. But yeah, you know, even after, you know, microdosing TBI on stage by headbanging after that first show and only getting, you know, four, maybe four and a half hours of sleep, definitely not having eaten enough. Um, When you're with the group, that whole energy kind of makes everything okay. I realized on this last tour that, you know, as a, as a group, as a band, as a musical entity, you end up making music together. You end up, you know, putting out a release. In our case, we made uh, an EP before this tour. And then you put together a live show where you're working on the set. And we generally think of, you know, the product that is consumable by the public, that gives us the feedback, that generates income as being kind of the apex of collaboration. And that is where we see the most material returns. But see, that next morning already like 6.40, sitting at the gate at SFO. I was kind of looking around at everybody. Everybody was tired. Everybody had that same glazed-over look in their eyes. But I felt this resonant energy of everybody still being stoked to be around one another. Now, other members of our crew and other people in our band have done plenty of touring since uh pandemic started its gentle uh fade out but uh it occurred to me that interacting with one another having good times creating memories that are more part of the life that we're mostly in than when we're in the studio or on stage or being perceived or consumed by the audience or the general public, uh, that interaction is as much of a collaboration as 
working on the music itself or whatever art or whatever medium. So I guess to say it more simply, making stuff together in our context as musicians on tour in a band, uh, I generally viewed that as the only thing I could cite as being collaborative. But now I realize that, you know, forging relationships and friendships, having discussions with people like Matt, Segak, Anthony or Rich, people I've known for decades now, is still a huge collaboration. These are interactions where we get to convey love and thoughts and and hopes and ideas or just humor, having a laugh. And I realize that that stuff leaves a mark on me. It affects me pretty much mostly positively. And I walk away from this time together with my valued bandmates and my collaborators, my brothers, sisters, and peers. I walk away from that better off, you know, better off for it. To me, that is hugely powerful, and that is a very meaningful collaboration. Most people may just call that an interaction, maybe just hanging out. But maybe it uh, accounts for a lot more than that, too. I think that's what I find to be the value of this whole new steez of field reports, which is I can listen to these seemingly mundane times, and I, for lack of a better term, see the magic in them. Much to the dismay of anybody trying to listen to this bored out of their minds, hoping for something that moves at a quicker pace. You're in the wrong place, sorry. So yeah, we get to LA. We have a great show at the Wiltern. Next, we go to the House of Blues in Anaheim, where it's sort of like this indoor festival thing put on by our good friend uh, Donnie from Hail the Sun. It's called Kill Iconic Fest. There was the main stage of the venue, and then the small room uh, had bands playing on it all day. And we sort of kind of get into the flow of being on tour now. You know, there's this sort of like, we have the first couple shows under the belt. I hate playing the first couple of shows always. Uh, For obvious reasons. You're not dialed yet. You don't feel dialed and comfortable on stage yet. Uh, I wasn't even close to having the chops that I wanted to yet. But I was getting there. And so you find yourself doing normal tour things. And because of the whole festival nature of the Anaheim show, we had, I think, 10 or 15 minutes less for our set, even though we were the headliner, just because there was like 25 bands that day or something. So you find yourself in the hotel room doing something that a lot of bands do which is reworking the set list, trying to figure out how to make it flow the best within the time constraints that you have, you know? But is that enough to, is cutting those enough? I don't know, I'm I'm blanking on all the songs again. I'm trying to find a set list somewhere. (laughs) It's 
funny is that in my guitar case, I have set lists from 2014 that oh, I just really? kept in there all these years. That's pretty sick. Even now in my Les Paul case, as we speak, there's two set lists from the two nights at the Troc we finished with in, two, in 2014 in Philly. We should uh, take a picture of that and post it. All right. As soon as I get back to my cases, I will. You're gonna be ready for a nap after your massage. I know. If we dust horse and cellophane. Oh, cellophane. That's, I think, close enough. I think that's the move. To where we. I think you might be right, dude. Especially because it's a shorter set, it's okay if we just go hard almost the whole time anyway. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we have a day off tomorrow. Yeah. So we played that Anaheim show and it was amazing. It was so fun. Uh, it was cool to be back on stage at that House of Blues, which was the place where I played my last show before pandemic with RX. You get a skateboard when you sell that venue out. It's got a different graphic and your band's name and the date and it says sold out. RX had one on the wall uh, backstage. It's still there and uh, we were lucky enough to get another one for the Sound of Animals fighting for that show. So after a, a good show, an awesome show, uh, I finally started playing decently. Go back to the hotel room and uh, Rich, being a native Californian who lives in Texas now, uh, doesn't get to have Del Taco very much, which is a, even for me admittedly, an enjoyable guilty pleasure. Uh, he had to have it. So, you know, late night after the show, we had to order some. <clears throat> I had to join in for my uh, once-a-year fast food experience. And it hit. It was definitely bussin'. It was definitely low quality and gross, but delicious. And the Chancellor Rich Balling wasn't fucking around. One burrito crushed. One burrito crushed. Now fish taco. Fish taco with questionable white sauce. <laughs> Macho fries. And yeah, that's such a typical scene after a show. I think that's something that everyone can relate to, whether you're attending the show as part of the audience or whether you're somebody that's on stage. Food never hits like it hits after a show. Some of my fondest memories growing up were always hitting the Denny's or whatever 24-hour diner was available after the show and even now whether i'm sitting backstage or at the hotel room or sitting in the front lounge of the bus I, while i'm enjoying whatever i'm enjoying i still think about that all the time as you know food the whole experience of eating it's a uh, important subject here at the musicians guild as every human uh, has a strong psychological relationship 
with eating or not eating or whatever your deal is. It's uh it's a big part of tour too, you know. A lot of your free time is spent searching for acquiring the foods you already love and all that. But one thing I will reiterate. Food never hits like it does after a show. Is this for everybody? No, only me. Oh. You're not allowed to even look at it. Yo! There is cold beer over here if you prefer that. No. Okay. Musicians Guild Field Report. Detroit, Michigan. On a Wednesday night. Uh, if I may interject real quick. I apologize for the smacking of lips and eating that you're hearing. Those are sounds that I hate. But for the sake of being in the moment and the reality of the situation, I'm just going to leave that stuff in so you can really kind of get the scene. But uh, listening to my own hellish nightmare ASMR of eating and talking um, isn't very cool for me. So uh, I apologize for that. Also, I'm sounding nasally because I was just getting over being sick. There was an exhaust leak on our bus. Then I didn't realize the AC vent in my bunk was pointed right at my face. We go from humid coastal San Diego straight to Phoenix, Arizona, where the humidity drops to like 0%. Sure enough, your boy gets a head cold. That does him dirty for a few days at least, so that's also why I sound like that. Anyways, you know, after show food. Just played a really good show. Everybody's in the dressing room eating some pizza, hanging out, doing their thing. Mr. Keith Goodwin, already in his slides, really nice high-water corduroy pants and a very slick denim jacket. Mr. Matthew Embry, still in his stage clothes, enjoying a slice of cheese pizza. Too much oregano. It has too much oregano on it? Yeah, for sure. That's a pretty dominant herb to have on a cheese pizza. Very dominant herb. Matthew Embry is being inundated by oregano at the moment. This is a soft pizza. Miss Haley Rippey is going in on a slice of cheese. It's like bigger than her face. Now it's as big as her face with that gigantic bite she just took. It's definitely as greasy as my face. (laughs) Comedic gold by our tour manager, Miss Haley Rippey. That looks tasty though. The way food hits after you get off stage is unparalleled, though. Mm-hmm. really is. And it's the best way to kind of bring yourself down from the adrenaline of the whole thing. You just start munching, you know? You know, I want to hate on this, but it's pretty good. Yeah, it's Mr. Matthew Embry has turned around on the oregano amount. He's enjoying it. No, it's still too much oregano, but... Hey, hey. Don't talk yourself out of that ether, because that ether was important to me. I know, that means a lot to me. Here comes the Chancellor, Mr. Rich Balling. Mr. Matthew Kelly. Are you living that pizza? Oh, I have signature. I know where you work. Pizza. I, I signed oh, it. Wheelchair. You I signed si- it. I signed it. Oh, I wish I could tell her. There's not a veggie one of those, Shit. is there? 
mean? I mean, like a che- uh, cheeseless one. There is. Yeah. There is. Is that what you're eating? No. Oh. <laughs> so that means that looks real. Do you remember the Domino's pizza cocaine scandal where they were they were um, dealing coke through Domino's and you had to order a pizza without cheese and they choked with like a kilo? Oh yeah. I'm sure I'm exaggerating. <laughs> you know, like you can get your cocaine by being like I like a pizza without cheese and like. Damn. Oh yeah. Can't do that anymore. Oh, cocaine and pizza are like. A- Two most diametrically opposed things. Like yeah, you don't want pizza when you're on coke. I yeah. got cocaine in my brain. You don't want coke when you're on pizza. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. I'm in love with the coca. Mm. I can also assure you that this group of old men that are fathers and in recovery and being healthy and such, uh, there's no actual cocaine use or partying of any sort happening. What you're hearing right now is the hardest that we party. And we party like that pretty hard, pretty often, with food and and hangs. Damn. Myself from 20 years ago would hate me now. But that self wouldn't be alive, and if he were, he wouldn't be very healthy or happy at all, so peace. All right, Chicago the Chancellor's going in on his first bite. Night nurse! Singing Gregory Ray Isaacs. Love the mask. The crust and the sauce is pretty good on this. Don't you agree that pizza is always short of sauce? I always order extra sauce because they never put enough sauce on it. You don't agree? Why did you switch to the Jackson earlier? I didn't. I've been playing Skullflower with it. You've been playing with the Jackson. I'm not too much sauce. Oh, when the songs. I just do whatever's easiest in the set list. I just yeah, yeah, people people have, to run. I don't know if they've gone down. No, I, I got it. No, they just, was there waiting for them, then I was to bring the... What you just heard there at the end was an exchange with our brother and guitar tech, Marcel, uh, who was asking me why I was using a different guitar for a song in our encore. And I was just telling him that uh, since we're ending the whole set with a song called Sharon Tate Despite Everything, with which I have to play my Jackson because it has a part in the chorus that I need to hit a whammy bar, uh, I'm telling him that I just played the song before it, which was a song called Skullflower, a mellow tune, with that same guitar, even though I hadn't previous shows just because the set got changed. And I didn't like I'm already doing so many guitar changes in this Sound of Animals fighting set that I'm trying to reduce guitar changes wherever I can. So any song that's not from Ocean and the Sun, uh, which is a particular album, uh, I'm going to just kind of combine the guitars because all Ocean and the Sun songs are tuned down a half step. So that's why I had my Les Paul dedicated to playing those songs. It also fits the sound right. Um, but yeah, I guess on this particular night, for the first time, I had played Skullflower, second to last song, with the Jackson, rather than the Jazzmaster. And he was asking me about that just because he had prepared something different. Uh, this is also a very normal, typical dialogue of what goes on any guitar techs or guitarists or anybody on stage or who works around the stage listening, you know what this is about, you know? 
So yeah, that whole section we just listened to was a significant portion of what's going down, you know, in our dressing rooms backstage after we get off of the stage itself. After that, I usually hit the shower and munch a little bit more and just hang out, you know. Uh, some of my favorite scenes from this particular tour were walking in and, you know, seeing everybody hanging out. I always knew it was time to relax when I see Anthony with his contacts out, his glasses on, eating a bowl of cereal. It's like one of those things. I'm like, oh, now it's really time to chill. We're all getting into it, you know. All of our jeans that got all sweaty on stage are off. We're in our sweatpants. It's time to kick it. Luckily, you know, a Sound of Animals fighting set is nowhere near as sweaty as an RX set just because we break up the set with mellow songs and a lot of these mellow songs, I'm just standing there behind the keyboard trying to not look too lame or too much like an Asian stereotype behind the keyboard there. But you know, I always know that there's those people in the audience that are just going to keep thinking of me as that little Chinese kid from School of Rock. And that's cool. I am but an Asian American male in America today, still, and yet. Fuck it. I still am blessed with being able to have fun playing keyboard and have fun playing guitar, rocking out, uh, where I get showered with more passive and well-meaning stereotypes of being so quote-unquote surgically precise and so stoic and emotionless and so uh, calculated or whatever else, you know, that I've discussed before that people like to chuck out at me which is really just projecting their perceptions of my ethnicity rather than perhaps just looking at me as a human who's playing music that they were watching and listening to. I don't know. I mean, I ain't mad at it, but I do laugh at it, at being the operative word in this uh, context. I got to admit, though, it, it really felt good to be on stage in front of a bunch of people rocking out hitting that sort of childish core of joy and expression. And uh, the one time that a socially anxious, antisocial weirdo like me enjoys being uh, part of the center of attention and having a bunch of eyes on me. And with that, luckily, you know, by this point in the tour, uh, a week or maybe a little more than a week in, I'm finally starting to play better, although admittedly there were parts where I, I never really played them right, just because sometimes you have to find those spots in a set where, you know, the apex is always like rocking out as much as you can while playing everything the best you can. But within that, there's always going to be sections of a set where you're compromising one or the other. And with The Sound of Animals Fighting, there are so many parts that are so technically demanding that, you know, inevitably I end up just standing there uh, looking downward while you're trying to focus on playing a really difficult part, which perfectly sets you up to kind of always be making a frumpy double chin face for anybody shooting upwards at you from the pit 
where the photographers are <laughs> right in front of the barricade. But again, you know, I plead the uh, fuck it because at the end of the day, I want to play better more often than I want to look cool. But uh, being up on stage, you have to think about both as what we are engaging in as live musicians is one of the most ultimate forms of performance art. You know, performance art being a term that carries a lot of just lame connotations and and uh, stigma because we think of somebody kind of uh, yelling and throwing their body covered in paint all over some like piece of paper on the ground or something that a lot of us can laugh at, even though I, I try to be cool and not laugh at anybody's form of expression. Uh, I am but a weak and flawed human and that kind of performance art just kills me. <laughs> I just, I can't take it seriously, but I admit that I should if I'm respecting uh, human beings. But like I said, uh, I am just weak, stupid old little me. So knowing that I will maybe get past it one day, but for me, that shit's still whack. But I digress. Uh, playing live, we have to try and find the balance of those two things. And wow, after not being on tour and not having this many shows put together in a row, for a while, it was cool to be out there on tour and kind of have a string of shows to figure this out. And I was trying to figure it out as quick as possible so that, you know, I can do my part to make the show better. And there are certain songs that I just never played perfectly. There's a song called I the Swan, which is a simpler song in the set and it has a chorus that's just all power chords but this chorus it pumps me up so much and I have so much fun playing it just like the tempo the meter the halftime nature of it I end up rocking out so much that uh, I'm pretty sure I messed up this phrase ending f sharp power chord like every time we played it so I'm sorry to all of you who who heard those uh bad power chords and started my bandmates for that but it had to happen because that part just got me too pumped up so a lot of those passages we've heard so far are all part of finding our rhythm as a 15 16 person moving unit and uh also being in that rhythm in that groove i myself found it pretty early being sick, you know, within the first week of tour kind of forced me to find my comfort. I am a back lounge dweller, pretty hardcore. Uh, nobody on my bus liked hanging out back there, but I don't know. It's something that I do regularly. I'm always back there in the back lounge. I like feeling, you know, secure and cozy when we're not sound checking doing a VIP meet and greet, or actually on stage, uh, you can usually find me there. I'll be back there watching YouTube or reruns of Frasier, you know, just hanging out. And uh, 
I'll dip in to watch some of the other bands. But about an hour before set change, I'll generally be back there just hanging out. And so part of my nightly routine uh, was always kind of shifting, not just physically from the back of the tour bus and the back lounge to the venue, but with that physical space change comes a very necessary head change. Where your head is at, you know, hanging out in the back lounge in the slippers, watching YouTube, is very far from where my head needs to be to get on stage and play like a mostly frenetic, high-energy set. And so, you know, if some of you have seen on the Musicians Guild Instagram, I posted a couple videos called An Evening Stroll. And that's what that was about. It was about this time where I'm walking from that chill space physically into the venue where, I mean, not to sound corny, but, you know, you got to do your work, handle your business. And so I always took that time to kind of shift the headspace. And it's cool. There's a lot of sounds and feelings and and uh, smells and sights that help you shift as well. Like walking from the street to an alley behind the venue and stepping onto rickety metal stairs to go up to the backstage door in St. Louis, Missouri. I wasn't feeling very hot that day, so I was walking in a bit later than usual. As you can hear, there's no band on stage. But I do love walking in at that moment just because uh, you can hear the house music going and you can hear the audience kind of getting excited because they see our crew on stage setting up as uh, Hail the Sun, who was our main support band, was getting their gear off stage. But generally speaking, I try to get in there a bit sooner than that. I like to always get in about, like, with the main support band having three or four songs left, I like to take in the really loud noise and the energy of the audience and the energy backstage from that. So uh, on a normal night, that evening stroll from the bus to backstage usually sounds something like this. And after I'm inside, I start stretching. I put on my stage shoes. I always have a separate pair of shoes for stage. I don't know why. I think I don't like like wearing the same pair of shoes all day. You get sweaty on stage and you know, I don't know. I'm just I'm just like that. <laughs> 
you know, I like wearing clean clothes and I'm just annoying like that. But I always also choose very flat soled and not too thick soled shoes so that I don't roll my ankle like the Chancellor Rich Balling did on the second show. Um, and also so that I can feel the buttons on my pedals. I already hit pedals on my pedal board by accident all the time. It's even worse when I'm wearing thick-soled running shoes or something where I really can't feel what's going on. So, yeah, that's the deal with shoes. I'm a shoe freak. I have too many shoes. I travel with too many shoes, but, yeah, I just have a weird shoe thing. I'm just like a shoe whore, I guess. But you do your whole pre-show stretching routine, get your wireless pack and your in-ears, get wired up. Uh, I start warming up on a guitar. It's all leading up to going out on the stage. For this last tour, we were opening the set with uh, a new song from the EP called Ape Shit. And it starts with a drum fill. I always love sets that start with drums playing a beat or a fill. Ever since seeing my first shows as a kid, it always just really conjured this feeling of excitement in me. And whether we're with RX or Sound of Animals Fighting, and I'm on stage, it's actually my band that I'm playing in, Like I still love it just as much. It creates this sort of anticipation and excitement that really just builds this energy in me. I love it a lot. But since we're on in-ears, we don't really have very loud stage volumes. And so it also discourages people from hanging outside stage to watch the set like a lot of people do, which is fine by me. Um, but yeah, just because it doesn't sound very good on stage with bands uh, on ears, because you don't have those wedges or stage monitors pointing back at the band so that they can hear themselves, uh, we're all getting it through directly into our ears. So from stage, it doesn't really sound that good. It sounds like this. You're mostly getting drums, and there you can hear a little bit of my guitar, but my stage volume wasn't very high at all, so you're mainly just getting drums. But yeah, if you want to watch Seagak, which is very entertaining and engaging and interesting all by itself, maybe a side stage is your spot. So yeah, there's a bit of my life on tour. There's a bit of my experience through my gratitude and appreciation for getting to do this still. I'd love to take this opportunity to thank my bandmates, the chancellor, the ringleader of this whole project, Rich Balling, um, for putting this all together and getting us all together to do this. 
I would also like to thank and show my appreciation for our amazing touring crew who literally all did top-notch work to make it all happen. From the production end of things, Charlie and Haley and Hollis making sure that everything was sorted and planned. Ali, our lighting director. Pavin, our front of house engineer. Marcel, our guitar tech. Ray, our photographer and kind of social media content director. And Danielle, who was doing merch. All of those jobs are so important. And quite frankly, uh, while we're out on the road on a day-to-day basis, all those people are working so much harder and doing so much more work than we are. I appreciate you so much. And if you are someone who attends a lot of shows uh, and you have a bad habit of telling the guy behind the soundboard what to do or how to make it sound better or bugging the person selling merch, you know, or uh, yelling at a guitar tech for a set list while they're trying to do their job, you know, you can do that if you want, but maybe you should consider how hard these people work to make the show happen before you're interacting with them. Because those are the people that are really making the show happen. You know, a common phenomenon that happens while on tour or while anyone is traveling really is, you know, this glorious loss of sense of time. And I think it makes sense as our sense of time is largely informed by our familiar surroundings and the routines and the circumstances of these surroundings, you know. And this is what kind of sets a pace for our day. And when we're out on tour, traveling, you know, that context and all those markers of time are immediately removed. And so you can't tell whether it's been 10 minutes or three hours. And you don't know whether you've been out for three days or two weeks. For someone like me, It provides a huge amount of space and comfort just to exist. I feel relief from it. That's all I feel from it, which is why I like traveling so much. And when you get to travel, doing something that you love, that you're so passionate about, it's kind of an ultimate experience. If you're listening to this while traveling or out on the road, I hope that you are moving around safely. I hope that you get home safely. And I hope that you're enjoying this glorious loss of perception of time as much as I have. Let's all keep losing our sense of time together and separately. Enjoy. This neighborhood has come up so much. Who the fuck is getting this? HR got those Uncrustables. Just to mess around because we've been getting converted jelly every day. So this is like, we're mixing it up. 
I'm shocked at how many people still fuck with Uncrustables. Every time I go to Costco, somebody has a giant box of those in their cart. No one ever really grows up. I don't know if I've actually ever had one. They taste like you would imagine they would taste. Yeah. Embry Breakfast of Champs, chocolate covered pretzels, and Fig Newtons. Big news are still good. They're really good. They're not too sweet. Yeah. That's my call. It's a timeless confection. <clears throat> I think. Look at my son. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I fuck with Hamilton so hard. I'm pretty sure. Is Hamilton tight? Should I watch it? Oh, oh it's tight. Go see it. I need, I need to see it too. So I'm flailing by not seeing the live You're show. Flailing. Okay. Is it you might be dust. It's not in Hollywood anymore? It's not in LA. I could probably watch a YouTube it video. Might still be in LA. I could watch a YouTube video of like the Broadway. It's not the same though. It's not the same. No, it's not. I've seen it in on Broadway and in Dallas when it came. The kids are super into it. That's cool. Is like the music actually good? So good. Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah, so like, on, like honestly, for the longest time, I was like an absolute hater with having no reference point to hate, just like the hype. I couldn't stand it. Yeah. Right. And then I went and saw it, like not knowing any of the songs, nothing. And mm-hmm. I was like, fuck. Yeah. <laughs> this is actually worth the hype. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I was shocked. I was a believer right away. With your in, if with both of y'all's endorsements, I can't deny it. Then it's it's one of those like cultural things that it's like like very few things live up to the hype. Yeah, yeah. You know, especially the way hype is nowadays. Yeah, yeah. everything gets hype. But I like, wanted to hate it so bad. Yeah, <clears throat> I actually think it's like properly rated or underrated. Whoa. Because it's fucking crazy. Like, when you just think that this one dude wrote all this shit, like, the, like it's wild. It's wild. So is it as good as Johnny Depp performing with Jeff Beck? Nothing is as good as that. <laughs> Nothing will ever top that. How many songs did Depp perform? <sighs> he played four in a row before we left. <laughs> I don't know how many he can play. <laughs> or I should say, he played with Jeff Beck for like three, four in a row. And then Did he sing my any? My dad was so mad. <laughs> 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 my dad was all buzzed up. And he was so pissed. He was like starting to like yell stuff. <laughs> I was like, we got to get my dad out of here. <laughs> He's still mad about it. I talked to him last night and brought it up. Because <laughs> Jeff Beck just died. He was like, yeah. If I had known Jeff Beck was gonna die, I would have walked up on stage and ripped that guitar out of Johnny Depp's hand and said, Get off the stage. That's incredible. So, was Depp singing at all? Oh, that's all he was doing. He was pretending to play guitar, but there was no guitar in the in the house. Gotcha. And he was like not really in time with his like pretend. He was just wearing his guitar super low and going like. Yeah. You know? Totally. But then his voice was loud and proud. So he came up to basically feature and sing some songs during Jeff Beck's set. So 
when my dad pitched it to me, like, he goes to these, like, boomer shows with, like, his friend who's, like, 10 years <laughs> younger, but still, like, boomer, I guess, because he's probably, like, 10 60. <laughs> and, like, you know, it's like, all right, cool, it's some time to, like, spend some time with my dad or whatever. And I was like, okay, and he just told me Jeff Beck. And we had seen Jeff Beck twice before. Yeah. And he's good. He's good. Yeah. Um, but, you know, he he lost a step this time for sure. Yeah. Um, it, definitely, like, losing some, like, finger stuff or whatever. When I saw him at, at the Hollywood Bowl, or, no, Greek Theater, like, probably almost 10 years ago now, like, he still had it, like, legit, and he uh. was in the 70s. But, you know. Anyway, unbeknownst to me, it was billed Jeff Beck and Johnny Depp, like, yeah. side, you know, same height. Yeah, that's what I saw. So I thought, yeah. are they two different acts, like, yeah. Co-headlining or no? So it was like Jeff Beck played like five hits. He came out and played like five. They had an opener, and the guy was actually really good. I don't remember his name, but he, he was good. He's like a folk guy. Um, and then Jeff Beck came out, band all girls. Drummer ripped. She looked like she was like twenty-five, ripping. Um, and then he played a little bit, and then like introducing fucking Jack Sparrow and then Jack Sparrow rolls out dressed all like Jack Sparrow with the fucking <laughs> eyeliner and everything like 17 scarves on dude. oh no like Joe his Highlander era yeah and just comes out and I'm assuming they were probably gonna play songs together the rest of the night but like I said Bill Embry got so pissed that they believe was most of the audience crunk just cause of the celebrity factor like Depp dude I was actually, I didn't think about it because I just thought it was sort of like this guy's getting old, maybe Johnny Depp comes and sits in for like two songs or whatever and that helped him like, you know, like boost the ticket sales, you know, um, but straight up it was at the Grove and that shit was sold out and it was like half Johnny Depp stands. like. Damn. And you could tell just by the way that they dress. And there was like single, like there was a, a girl sitting next to me on this side, probably like 35, by herself. And I was like, who the, what 35 year old woman knows anything about fucking Jeff Beck or like boomer guitar players? Yeah. Oh, that's not what that she was there for. Depp. As soon as Depp got up, her phone was out, like perms, dude. And like girls were screaming, dude, like they were fucking 17 and they were like all, you know, middle aged and shit. It was pretty crazy. His like cult of personality or whatever, like his his celebrity yeah. still going strong, man. Yeah. Thank you. It's one thing to, to like be pumped on and watch all his movies and his YouTube shit. It's another thing to like buy a fucking $80 ticket to come see him at the Grove. Watch him play really crappy guitar. Mm hmm. I saw some like like designer commercial where he's like playing guitar in it too and he just looks so ridiculous playing the guitar <clears throat> Toby was saying um, so like apparently he's a really good dude apparently um, Toby was saying so you know Cielo isn't wasn't the Tate house on Cielo Drive yeah yeah okay so probably because of that Johnny Depp bought every house on Cielo Drive he owns the entire street. Oh, that's crazy. Including the Sharon Tate house. That's crazy, bro. Oh. And he 
took Dap. He took one of the houses and converted one hundred percent into like maybe the nicest studio in LA. But it's just his. And he has like a staff for it that he just calls at any time that rolls up for his like cockamamie recordings. <laughs> and then another one he sold to Joe Perry because he's friends with Joe Perry. podcast is real honest conversation with our celebrity friends and pros covering our anything but average rock and roll lifestyles all while tackling the hell that is aging and the battle of beauty oh yeah nothing is off the table the honest af show is available wherever you get your podcasts <laughs> 